Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. On this uh, Christian holiday of Easter, one of the things we will be missing out this year as our congregation uh, can't get together uh, on our property is uh, our egg hunt. Um, It's an old FUS tradition to have an egg hunt for our humanist children on Easter Sundays. The staff uh, lovingly calls it the socialist egg hunt because the FUS tradition is for those who gather the most eggs to share equally with those who have gathered the least eggs. And I think that's a fitting tribute to the memory of the first humanist manifesto that dreamed of a shared life in a shared world. It's a small way that we teach our children of FUS about justice and about equity. In his autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom, Nelson Mandela wrote this. I have walked that long road to freedom. I have tried not to falter. I have made missteps along the way, but I have discovered the secret that after climbing a great hill, one only finds that there are many more hills to climb. I have taken a moment here to rest, to steal a view of the glorious vista that surrounds me, to look back on the distance I have come. But I can only rest for a moment, for with freedom come responsibilities, and I dare not linger, for my long walk is not ended." End quote. Nablest language, yes, and it's a very old metaphor, but apt for a person, I think, who spent 27 of his 95 years in prison. The view from the hill just climbed reveals a view of all the hills climbed and the many hills yet to climb. In his book, Mandela does not sound like someone tired of those many challenges. Rather, he is exhilarated by the slow but inexorable progress toward justice that he has been a witness to in his lifetime. His is a classic articulation by someone willing to stay in the process of becoming. The process of becoming is as long and as short as human life is. Uh, Becoming rather than being. And in the spirit of uh, this springtime, that's what I want to talk about today. I ran across a very intriguing piece of research the other day as I was reading. Three neuroscientists are working on how each of us perceives and develops a sense of me, the self. The researchers tested pairs of friends, they were people who knew each other fairly well, and the two friends were fitted with video goggles that presented what the other friend was seeing. Then the researchers used what they're calling synchronous touching, that is the researchers touched the bodies of the two participants in the same place at the same time so that each participant was seeing the other's body being touched yet felt it themselves. 
Now, previous to the experiment, each participant was asked to fill out a 120-question form concerning their self-concept. After the experiment, each was given the same questionnaire and they were asked to do those 120 questions again. Now, I'll quote the study. We found that even a brief experience of illusory ownership of the friend's body changed the content and structure of multiple beliefs about one's own personality and made them more similar to beliefs about the friend's personality." End quote. This contradicts a folk psychological belief, I think that most of us have, that we have this self that is consistent over time. Rather, the sense perceptions of our bodies are shaping our sense of self all the time. And the study reveals, quote, the role of the body in the continuous construction of our sense of who we are. And I'll repeat that. The role of the body in the continuous construction of our sense of who we are. I'll quote from the study again. It says, the illusory ownership of another person's body not only modifies attitudes toward this person or toward a social group to which this person belongs, but also, and perhaps predominantly, modifies beliefs about the self. Taken together, our results highlight the importance of the sense of one's own body as a foundation of social identity and self-concept. End quote which, it seems to me, fairly well explains why, well, one thing, it's tough to be a teenager and why it's so tough when we're struck with illness and infirmity, changing our bodies that disrupts our sense of self. This study also goes some way toward explaining the wisdom of the worldview of a person like Nelson Mandela, dedicated to the process, not to the end, the goal, dedicated not to being but to becoming. Now start thinking about it, and we ha actually have lots of sayings about the self that reflect an understanding of the self as not fixed and solid. Uh, I wasn't myself, we say. I was beside myself. I surprised myself. I got carried away. I couldn't get my head in the game. I was out of my mind. I found myself. I can't handle myself. I can handle myself. What's the self of which we speak? Now, the French philosopher uh, Gilles Deleuze said this, the self is only a threshold, a door, a becoming between two multiplicities. And I'll say that again. The self is only a threshold, a door, a becoming between two multiplicities. This becomes vividly true when we do our inner work of spiritual practices, I think. We are that self that we were back in time, and we can look at the scars on ourselves to know that we are that self. Yet, despite the scars of time and history and memory, we are not the fixed self of our past. We are becoming. We are always on that threshold of multiplicities. Every serious spiritual practice that I know of, any serious examination of the inner work will tell us that. It's all about the multiplicities.
Recent neuroscience has been awakening us to the fact that we are embodied cognition. That's the new term for it, embodied cognition. There isn't a mind and then a soul and then a body that could be neatly categorized and dissected. Western science has been wrong about that all along. We are a whole. But wait, uh, what do these ideas of embodied cognition and the potential multiplicities of the self do to another folk psychological concept that we tend to have, which is that there is a true self? How many times have you heard someone say of a loved one who's done something that's clearly wrong, oh, but that's not his true self? When most people are asked if they would be the same self in another body, the answer is generally yes, because of that folk perception that we have a true self. This perception doesn't appear to be the case, which does some damage to that old idea that in the afterlife we will be sitting on pink clouds playing harps. What self might it be that would be doing such things? It appears that disembodied selves are no selves at all. Humanist thought and practice teaches us that not only should each of us pursue life to its fullest while we can, but that we are obliged to strive to provide the means for living a fulfilled life for everyone in our society and in our world. Given the circumstances of having this one life, it's the least that we can do for each other. Uh, reflect for a moment. Don't we admire a Nelson Mandela's focus on purpose exactly because we know how difficult it is to stay focused on a single goal through life's changes? The probability that there are no pink clouds and harps in an afterlife calls us to the responsibility of making this one life we share a good one for all living things. Furthermore, that probability calls us into a deep engagement with the process of becoming, because becoming is the one thing we are actually and authentically doing at all times with each breath that we take. We are becoming, and that's a fact. What we are becoming is largely up to each of us if we're lucky. There are lots of examples of people overcoming circumstances to become more. Even prison doesn't stop those so inclined, such as Nelson Mandela. Or consider another case, Malcolm X. He spent six and a half years in prison. While he was there, he learned to read and to write and even joined a debating society. He used the time to become something he had not been before. He went into prison, a person who made a living by petty crime. He came out prepared to be a national leader. He became Malcolm X. Almost 3,000 years ago, the philosopher Heraclitus, who was born in the Persian Empire, said this, This universal order, which is the same for all, has not been made by any god or person, but it always has been and will be an ever-living fire, kindling itself by regular measures and going out 
by regular measures, end quote. Now, I don't think Heraclitus uh, was quite right about his assumption that time had always existed, but he did nail that part about change. To be is to be becoming. Heraclitus saw that we cannot step into the same river twice because the river is not static and we ourselves are never static. All reality is in the process of becoming with no end in sight. The hard climb to the top of a hill only reveals all the other hills and rivers to step into and over. But crucially, it reveals that we are, with each moment and step of our lives, becoming. The Buddha taught that our desire for being without becoming, for stasis rather than for flow, is the source of human suffering, which is uncomfortable, isn't it? That's where the befuddlement comes from, uh, and it comes on strong sometime. It is tough to be becoming all the time, but to be is to be becoming. Everybody is becoming, becoming something. The question is not if, but what. Honestly, even though it's a cliche, I don't really remember anyone ever asking me when I was a kid, what are you going to be when you grow up? I guess because where I grew up, uh, the choices for male-identified people like me were farmer uh, or coal miner or drunk. Once uh, after I moved away to college, I was back home and a cousin asked me to talk to one of his friends. This friend, I guess, was in his early 20s. Uh, he'd hit bottom. Drugs, drinking, a couple of arrests, hopeless. Since I had achieved this marvelous accomplishment of getting away to college, my cousin wanted me to talk with this guy to buck up his spirits, and so I went to visit. Now, this guy lived in a typical Ozark Hills mobile home. Uh, rusted, up on blocks, weeds for a yard, busted furniture and appliances scattered everywhere, and the door wide open and cats and dogs running around everywhere. And I asked the guy, is there anything you're interested in? Photography. He was interested in photography. He would like to be a professional photographer, he said. I didn't know much about photography, but I asked him some questions. Um, did he have a camera? No. Did he know what kind of camera he would like to have? No. One like uh, he had seen on TV. Had he studied the work of a particular photographer, maybe in Rolling Stone or something like that? No. But it looked cool, taking pictures all the time and getting rich and famous for it. Now, I, I didn't have a crystal ball in those days to see this guy, uh, what would happen to him, but I pretty well knew he was never going to become a photographer. He was headed to jail and to an early grave. Now, perhaps this would be somehow an instructive or even a humorous story if it weren't the story of so many disadvantaged people. You simply can't get there from here. Hence, so many deaths in the United States from those diseases of despair that we hear so much about. The human animal craves meaning and purpose, craves becoming more and more, and when it's stifled, there's going to be trouble. As writer Alice Walker 
phrases it, quote, people are attempting to decolonize their spirits, a crucial act of empowerment. Decolonizing the spirit, end quote. Getting out of the strictures that stifle becoming, experiencing those multiplicities. This is the joy of life and the tragedy for those who have no models for other ways of being, those who have no way to find which hills to climb. Yes, as Nelson Mandela wrote, I have walked that long road to freedom. I have tried not to falter. I have made missteps along the way, but I have discovered the secret that after climbing a great hill, one only finds that there are many more hills to climb." End quote. This isn't a, a cry of despair in his book. It's an articulation of a life of meaning and purpose well lived. It's a long road and there are lots of hills after struggling up one, we can look back at all the hills we've managed. We can look forward to the hills yet to overcome. But the wisdom to learn is that life is all about becoming. It's all about the hills all the way through. That's what wisdom calls us to. It's what the spring of the year reminds us of, to be yourself Listen to your body, be where you are, and remind yourself to be is to be becoming. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism, and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.